Good evening. This is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. I'm hoping our, my co-host Vicki Iden will be joining me shortly, but first here are the headlines for this evening. Hospital beds across the state are nearing capacity, and now the state has asked for help from the federal government to help with worker shortages. The Associated Press reports that 1,630 people are hospitalized due to COVID-19 as of Tuesday, which is up 212 over last week. 97% of intensive care beds are now full, with many hospitals stating they would rather they would be able to admit more patients if more staff were available. As of yesterday, Wisconsin had only 37 unused ICU beds. The Capital Times reports that as many as 100 federal health care workers could be coming to the state from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. In a press conference earlier today, Department of Health Services Secretary-designee Karen Timberlake said they were currently in contact with the agency and they could arrive, the workers could arrive within a matter of weeks. Timberlake said the majority of the hospitalized patients are unvaccinated, reminding everyone to get vaccinated and to continue to wear masks. There were another 3,519 confirmed cases of COVID-19 across the state today, bringing the seven-day average up to 3,155. 11.6% of tests have come back positive over the last seven days. There were no reported deaths from the virus today, though the running seven-day average currently sits at 23 deaths per day. The total number of deaths across the state since the start of the pandemic is now 9,237. 59.2% of people in Wisconsin have now received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, with 56.3% having completed all doses. Here in Dane County, 179 new cases of the virus have been reported today, and the county joins every county in the state as having a high transmission rate. <clears throat> Sticking with COVID-19 news another moment, the Madison Metropolitan School District set another weekly high in students and staff testing positive for the virus this past week. The Capital Times reports that there were 130 positive cases of the virus last week, with 706 people considered to be in close contact with someone with the virus. This is now the fifth straight week of growth in COVID cases in the school district. So far, there have been 897 confirmed cases of the virus this semester, with 153 of those cases occurring over the last 14 days. <coughs> Cats around Madison will now be a bit safer, though perhaps not our chairs and couches. Last night, the Madison Common Council unanimously approved a ban on declawing of cats within the city. The ordinance was first introduced in September and drew support from groups far and wide, from the Madison Cat Project to the Humane Society of the United States. The legislation was introduced by Alder Lindsay Lemmer, who called declawing cats a cruel, outdated, and inhumane practice. Declawing is illegal in several countries, such as Germany and the United Kingdom, as well as several cities closer to home, such as Los Angeles and St. Louis. Also last night at the Common Council meeting, 
A green light for new luxury student housing project, a Wisconsin State Journal reports. The building, which will be built on the 300 block of State Street, will hold 386 units in 10 stories with 100 beds reserved for low-income UW-Madison students. The building, dubbed Olive Madison, is being built by Chicago-based Core Spaces, who built the Hub and the James, two other large luxury student housing projects in Madison. Opponents of the project, including Alders Juliana Bennett and Nikki Conklin and Jill Curry, say the project could harm students by driving up all rental prices in the surrounding area. Construction on Olive Madison is anticipated to begin in spring of 2022. The Madison Common Council voted last night to continue to meet virtually until at least May, late May, in fact, of next year. That's according to the Capital Times. This comes at the chagrin of Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, who says that having virtual meetings for this long has been incredibly detrimental to the functioning of the council. Although the vote to stay virtual was partly due to rising COVID cases, Alder Grant Foster says that moving to in-person meetings would also be a big loss to the public to lose their opportunity to participate virtually. The only uh, the original motion put before the council called for them to meet virtually until February 1st of 2022. A power outage on Madison's southwest side left 2,000 customers without power last night. WKOW reports that the outage began around 8 p.m. and left people without power for about two hours. The power outage occurred as the city experienced freezing temperatures with Truax Field on the city's east side recording temperatures in the low 20s during that period. And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Pardon me. When incarcerated people in Wisconsin need to make a phone call, they are charged fees that can vary dramatically across the state, with some calls costing more than $5 a minute. A new bill seeks to standardize the amount that counties are able to charge for access to phones in prisons. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has the story. Today, lawmakers put forward a pair of bills to standardize how much incarcerated folks can be charged for phone calls. Current state law does not cap how much prisons, or the companies they contract with, can charge for phone calls. According to research by the Appleton Post-Crescent and the Prison Policy Initiative, the rate for a 15-minute phone call varies drastically across the state. In state prisons, it costs 90 cents for 15 minutes. But in county jails across Wisconsin, that same phone call could cost much more, $9.90 in the Greene County Jail or $14.77 in the Polk County Jail. The bills are put forward by a group of 10 Democratic lawmakers, including Madison area representatives Sandra Balde, Francesca Hong, Sheila Stubbs, and Madison Senator Melissa Agard. And the legislation would prohibit state and county jails from entering into contracts for telecommunication services that charge above what major national prepaid wireless telephone providers would charge their customers. The FCC currently has limits of 14 cents per minute maximum for interstate calls, which is well below what many Wisconsin prisons currently charge. The three companies that currently contract with county jails are Securus, GTL, and ICS Solutions who is also the provider for the state prisons. According to publicly available data, at least two of those companies saw growth in profits in 2020. 
In a press conference earlier today, Senator LaTanya Johnson of Milwaukee said that the bills are about fairness for more than just the incarcerated individuals. As of December 3rd, 2021, Wisconsin had 20,088 inmates serving time behind bars. However, those behind bars are not the only ones serving time. Their spouses, partners, parents, siblings, and most important, their children are serving these sentences as well. Senator Johnson says that the bills are also aimed at standardizing the price of other communications like video. Also speaking at the press conference was James Morgan, lead peer support specialist for Just Dane. Formerly known as Madison Urban Ministry, Just Dane is a nonprofit organization that offers outreach to those within the criminal justice system. Morgan spent over 24 years in the Wisconsin prison system. He says eliminating barriers for incarcerated people to communicate is important. That phone call was what reminded me that I was more than an inmate. It reminded me that I was father, that I was brother, that I was grandson, okay? That I was needed and that I was necessary to be able to come home and be a part of the family, to actually step into the role that was created for me as a human being to be able to guide and direct my children and my, only, my other family members, to be there to protect them in ways that I could, okay? and at the same time figure out how to redirect my life. The lawmakers also say that, like with most elements of the criminal legal system, the issue has disparate effects for children of color and emphasize the importance of a child's communication with incarcerated parents. Senator Agard said that the bills would level the playing field and help incarcerated people live normal lives once they are released. We know that there is a roughly 34% increase of people when they can can't stay in touch with their friends and families of being able to be successful. Yeah, and we know that the high and constant cost of communicating with loved ones is a barrier. It puts a strain emotionally as well as financially on people's lives. We have a moral obligation to be fixing this. The twin pair of bills, one in each chamber of the legislature, are currently circulating for co-sponsorship. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. A Milwaukee alderwoman is floating a resolution to grant 12 weeks of paid parental leave for city employees. If adopted, the program would be one of the most robust in Wisconsin. Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Like most of the nation, Wisconsin doesn't have a statewide paid parental leave policy. But in Milwaukee, a three-month paid parental leave policy is being proposed for city government employees. The city of Milwaukee doesn't currently offer paid parental leave for its workers. Milwaukee Alder Marina Dmitrievich says if adopted, her proposal would provide long-term benefits for children. When they're at home, the babies with their family members, um, we know breastfeeding rates increase, infant mortality can decrease, the bonding increases, and it's a best start possible. The proposal comes as federal lawmakers debate a similar measure in the Build Back Better framework. In recent weeks, that provision has been slashed from three months of paid leave to one. A 2018 report from the Partnership for Women and Families found a national paid parental leave policy of three months would result in at least 600 fewer infant deaths annually. According to the Bipartisan Policy Center, only nine states and the District of Columbia have adopted statewide parental leave policies. Dmitrievich says her proposal could make Milwaukee's one of the most generous such programs in Wisconsin. We know there's employee and labor shortages across the nation. 
And I think this will make a great place for talent and recruitment and diversity and inclusion. Jennifer Morales with the organization Family Values at Work says activists have been pushing to expand paid parental leave in the state for decades. She notes Wisconsin was a leader in establishing unpaid parental leave in the 1990s. Families need this. We need this for our health. We need this for our um, economic stability and to end poverty and so many great benefits for families. The three-month proposal was introduced to Milwaukee City Council last month. It's making its way through the committee process and is expected to be before the city's finance committee in January. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt sat down with Erpenbach today at his Capitol offices to talk about his tenure at the State House. After a 20-year career at the State Capitol, Senator John Erpenbach says he will not be running for re-election next year. The Democrat from West Point was first elected in 1998. I'm here with Senator Erpenbach at the State Capitol to reflect on his time in office. Senator Erpenbach, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Sure, and please call me John. John, all yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, it'll help you save tape. There we yeah. go, yeah. Save a little bit of time. Yeah. So what made you decide not to run again? It wasn't anything in particular other than than the fact that I started thinking that I don't know if I necessarily want to do this anymore after 24 years when my term is up. And the second you start thinking about it, it's probably a pretty good indicator to yourself that maybe you should get out. And so, what again, it wasn't anything particular. It's not so much, you know, the political divide that's out there or you know, anything like that. It's just more a matter of I've been driving around the state in my district for the last 24 years. You know, I've loved every minute of it, but it's time to do something else. Sure. So you've had a pretty long run in the Senate with over 20 years on Mm -hmm. the job. Is there any one thing that you've accomplished that you're most proud of? Um, Well, going way back, way, way back, we had the no call list. That was a piece of legislation that I had that got passed and and people loved it. Um, And that actually came as a result of a meeting I was having at the Middleton Senior Center where senior citizens, you you, you go and you talk about the issues. And we were talking about, you know, A, B, C, D, and E. And then somebody talked about uh, to another senior there about the telemarketing call that they got last night. And they didn't stop about telemarketing marketing calls after that at all. So yeah, coming up with a no call list was, was a big deal working on, um, uh, healthcare and health insurance and affordability and access is something that I've done from day one and, and continue to do now, uh, is another very, very important issue to me. So the political landscape has really changed over the last 20 years that you've been in office. What what has been probably the biggest change that you've seen in Wisconsin politics uh, and the time that you've been in office here? Uh, we've stopped listening to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we are so loud right now, both sides, that, that we can't hear the other side. They can't hear us. And so the idea of spending time with somebody who you don't necessarily agree with, talking with them, listening to them and trying to understand why the thing, why the way why they think the way they think is something that just doesn't happen as much around here anymore. And since that has stopped, the idea of a Democrat and a Republican sitting down um, and, and working on something together has kind of gone by the wayside uh, on, on important issues. A lot of what we vote on, you know, passes a state Senate 33 to nothing or 30 to three or whatever with bipartisan support. But it's that 10 percent of the issues that that really 
both sides care about, there doesn't seem to be any room for even discussion anymore right now. And that'll change. I mean, that, that'll mm-hmm. change back. But but in the meantime, that's the biggest change is, is that, you know, everybody's talking, nobody's listening. Do you how long do you think something like that can go on with us not listening to each other? Well, um, I don't know. That's a great question. I wish I had an answer for you. I, <laughs> I don't I don't know. I, I know some of this has to do with the problem within the Republican Party right now in that the majority of the Republicans are actually telling the minority are, are telling the majority what they're going to do. Most Republicans I know don't think the election was stolen. Most don't think what Gableman is doing right now is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Most don't think that that, you know, saying the uh, there's election fraud out there. They don't believe that. And the Republican Party's got to straighten itself out. And, and that's nothing the Democrats can help them with. And I think once the Republicans straighten themselves out and, and the majority of the Republican Party, again, takes over their message and, and their elections and so on. I, th- I think the doors to compromise on legislation probably will open then. So you've been a part of the Democratic caucus here, mm-hmm. of course. What are some of the most pressing issues going forward here? Right now, I think the most important issue that Wisconsinites on both sides of the aisle uh, need to keep an eye on is just your ability to be able to do something as simple as vote. I mean, voting rights are at risk right now. Um, election, the election process is at risk right now. Uh, the fact that the Republicans want five of the six Wisconsin election commissioners to resign when this is something they voted for from the beginning. This is their idea of mm-hmm. what should have been done uh, to me is is reckless. Uh, so. Uh, for Democrats, especially um, for people living in more urban areas, um, uh, urban counties, for example, uh, really need to keep an eye on the fact that they while they can legally cast a ballot right now, I, I think roadblocks will be thrown up anywhere possible to try and make it more difficult to vote. And that's something that needs to stop. What do you hope that your successor will bring to the Senate? Uh, the ability to listen to both sides, the ability to understand that everybody in the district has something to offer, whether they supported them or not. The idea that, um, you know, that the, the 27th Senate district is a beautiful part of the state. I mean, you got the Wisconsin River kind of cutting right through the middle of a Baraboo Bluffs down to Nuclearis. It's just gorgeous. But there are equally differing opinions on a lot of things. And so anybody who's going to be successful at this and, and really serve the constituents, not only who voted for that person, but also didn't vote for that person. It needs to have the ability to be able to sort through issues, listen to people you don't agree with and and, and try and do the best job you possibly can do. Now that you're not going to be running for reelection, what's mm-hmm. next for John Erpenbach? Will you be <laughs> will you be going back to a uh, full time shuttle driver? Yeah, there or? you go at the Marriott. I love that job, by the way. Um, so. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I never when I made the decision not to run my my first thought was not, oh, my God, what's next? Because I, I don't know. I mean, I still want to finish out the term if I can. I've got a, a year left and, and work to do here at the Capitol. But moving forward, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm not worried about what I am going to do. I'm excited about what I will end up doing. And I don't know what that is yet. I'm not ruling out maybe running for office again someday. I don't know. I mean, this is this isn't a retirement as much as I don't want to be a state senator anymore. And it's somebody else's turn to to do that. Uh, uh, But I'm excited about what's out there, whatever that might be. 
So, John, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts on the current political landscape or the future of Wisconsin here? Well, you know, to, to your Democratic and Republican listeners, both sides, mm-hmm. um, the legislature can do a better job and has to do a better job. Legislators shouldn't worry about making sure they get 51 point, 50.1% of the vote, and then that means they have a mandate to do everything. Let The legislature can do a better job uh, in working with the governor, even, and I would expect that your listeners on both sides of the aisle should should expect that from them. All right. Great, John. Thank you again for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure to catch up with you again. All right. Great. Good to see you. Yes. Good to see you, John. Time is now 632 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rob McClure, along with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. What is sound art and how can it be created collaboratively? On this edition of Artful Encounters, feature contributor Gabrielle Javier Cerulli joins UW-Whitewater professor Nick Huang in discussing this relatively new art form. Hello, I'm Gabrielle Javier Cerulli with Artful Encounters. Today, we will explore sound art. I'm Nick Wong, and um, I'm a composer and sound artist. Um, I, I currently teach at the University of Whitewater, and um, as a sound artist, that um, I normally am working with sound or making art about sound. And a lot of the things that I like to do is to create collaborative, interactive experiences, and sometimes that involves maybe people playing some type of game or interacting with a physical structure, um, being in some type of environment that takes them out of their day-to-day and something that produces sound or has them working together to create sound. Gotcha. Um, Um, I've created an environment not long ago where people would walk into this cave-like environment where they couldn't see and they had to use this glowing orb to guide themselves through the space. And embedded in the space are sensors that are looking for light. So as they approach different areas, there was there was sound that reacted to them. And I tried to get the sense that this this cave environment was alive. It oh. was alive. And they were it was like aware of them. So as they approached different areas to help them see what they were doing, um, the, the space reacted to their presence. So it's yeah. kind of like what you're talking about with Gleam. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, people when people think of the creative arts, they're thinking visual music, movement, theater. Um, How did you come, what was your background to get to this point of calling yourself a sound artist versus a musician? Like, did you go to school for music? I did. I did. All my degrees are in music composition and I didn't really get to explore like the idea of sound art until grad school where I did some of it, some of it for theater. But then when I I started to work with different types of objects and programming, like taking maybe a block or a a game controller and taking that data that it could give you and tying it into different sounds where people could pick this thing up and then move it around, maybe explore or having things embedded into the walls of things. Um, did I sort of, did it open up my eyes to the possibility possibility of making sound art with those types of uh, devices? You can visit my website and I have a number of videos that show some of the work that I've done. Currently, I don't have anything in Dane County. Where, where do you have something up now? 
Um, well, I have that that work that's in New York that's okay. going to open up in December, but there's um, nothing that's up in, in Wisconsin at the moment. What is going on in New York in December? In December, I am working with some collaborators up collaborators up in New York, and we are part of a larger show that addresses the Bill of Rights, and we are concentrating on a particular bill, the the tenth bill. And ours is an interactive sound installation where uh, visitors can read about our particular bill in in view of the cases that have helped shape it. And they'll be able to see these tablets that are surrounding a column. And on this column are, are speakers and objects that move and react to the participants voting on whether they agree with the cases, the historical cases that have shaped it. And so depending on how you vote, the objects will react with sound and light. Wow, that's really cool. It often sounds like it is, uh, your sound art is often um, interactive. Yes, uh, that's something that I really strive for. I, I think it's really interesting when you can take a participant away from their typical way of interacting with things and have them think about what they're doing and the resulting sound. And then often I'm always trying to have them work with other people as well. So one-on-one is a great uh, scenario, but if you can work with somebody else to do it, I think it's a lot more interesting. Yeah. Uh, what else have you done for the field? Uh, there's something collab-hub.io and please speak in layman's terms when you explain what this uh, network is. <laughs> so Collab Hub is a set of applications and tools for artists that want to connect with each other to make things like sound art or audiovisual performance. Oh. And this came about through the pandemic when my, my friends and I who live in different states wanted to work with each other, like making music together or making visual art together. But we couldn't connect. We wanted to connect outside of just doing typical Zoom calls. So maybe I wanted to make um, my friend Eric's computer make some sort of sound. I needed to send that information over to him. And so we've been working on this set of um, applications that allow people to connect to each other really easily to send that type of um, control data to make that all happen. And so this software allows you to connect a lot of popular art making tools together and so that you can have remote collaborative experiences. Is it in use now? And it, like, how many users are on it? Um, is there is it um, freeware? Like, can you explain if yeah. people want to get involved with it? Yeah. So it, it is all free to use, and people can go to our website to download the software so that it can connect with their popular tools. So some some applications that our users use are are things like Max MSP, Pure Data. Um, other applications like VVVV or a, a game engine called Unity, all of those work well with it. So if you want to connect all of those tools together with each other, you would use our software to make that all happen. And it's the main point of it was that you can use it so that it can span the globe. And we have people that have used it from, uh, we know people in Australia to New Zealand 
to the Netherlands, to other places around the world using this tool. I was interacting with somebody in um, South America because they were having some trouble making it all work. And I Skyped with them and got them connected. And yeah. Um, You know, I should have asked this before. What kind of musical instruments do you know how to play? My first instrument was piano. And then I studied oboe in college and I played some instruments in between there, some saxophone, some clarinet. Do you find yourself still using those to record sound or you're just totally doing like the digital? I haven't picked up those instruments in a long time. Most of my music making is through digital means at the moment. And and where do you think it's going to go? Like as a, as an art form? I think sound art can definitely expand and there's definitely more realms that it could get into. And, you know, it does, it's not, definitely not limited to just digital means. Um, most of the stuff that I research is for digital means, but as far as objects and structures and big environments making sound art, I think that's totally possible. The stuff that I'm really interested in for as far as sound art goes is enabling uh, anyone to be able to create sound art, especially collaboratively through the web. And so mm-hmm. I've been slowly porting most of the stuff that I create to be able to be accessed to the web. So you could use your mobile phone in concert in interact installation you use your phone as a controller so that you don't need to specifically download an app just access that certain page whether through qr code or just typing it in and then you can interact with people that are remotely or together yeah wow i think like in digital realms like the the next big step for sound art is going to be in the virtual world as well as the augmented reality world that makes sense yeah well, great. Thank, uh, thank you for answering those questions. Is there anything else that's coming up or that you'd like to share about your work or just sound art in general? I know that the, by the time this airs, I have a, it's going to be too late, but I have a concert tonight at the UW Whitewater and with a bunch of other composers that are being played, performed tonight. Is that, is that going to be available? Is that going to be recorded and available? Yeah, it's going to be recorded, yes. So they can, uh, folks can listen to it um, on the Whitewater website? Yes, I believe so, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. All right, Nick, can you um, spell your name for your website so if people want to find you, how they can sure. contact it's you? N-I-C-K-H-W-A-N-G dot com. Great. All right, thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you. That was Nick Wong, sound artist and professor at Whitewater. This is Gabrielle Javier Cerulli with Artful Encounters. I'll be back soon with another feature highlighting local creatives. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, it was a bit of a struggle to clear the clouds out today, but we did manage to get uh, skies mostly empty by the late afternoon hours, so we could watch the earliest sunset of the year. That occurred at 424 and 16 seconds this afternoon. The sunset will actually remain unchanged in its timing through tomorrow before it starts to get later again. (coughs) Pardon me. While we couldn't quite muster enough snow to whiten the ground yesterday, we did manage to drop to 6 degrees in the hours before sunrise, with incoming Arctic air holding its chill as it came in over snow-covered ground to our north. So that was our coldest temperature of the winter so far. 
and it may be the coldest for a while yet to come the way it's looking. There are significant indications of another period of upper ridging and warm air returning next week. But in between, we've got a snowstorm that we've yet to uh, figure out. And while its track has held on the more southward bent that it first took on the models back on Monday, it's still not on a far enough southeastward track to really give us a shot at heavy snow. Though there continues to be some variance between models and some shifting back and forth from run to run on the models. So a chance yet, I suppose. The clustering of prospective tracks so far takes the surface circulation with the storm from about eastern Kansas Friday morning to uh, Keokuk, Iowa by evening and then up to around Kenosha by early Saturday morning. Provided that track doesn't shift any further back north, and you'll have to cross your fingers on that score, the temperature profiles at Madison look to stay right around freezing from the ground uh, up to through the first mile or so of the atmosphere. That would hopefully keep the precipitation as snow as it comes down, though areas to the south and east are almost certain to mix with a fair amount of rain. Upward motion through the saturated part of the air column looks best from about mid-afternoon on Friday through early evening, but the ingress of the upper jet from the west and southwest as it curls into the storm later that evening and the overnight period may dry out enough of the air column aloft to stanch more active precipitation at that time. But it would also be around that time that colder air would be on its way in from the north, so if temperatures do air just a little on the warm side as the National Weather Service is currently anticipating in its gridded forecast for that period. A brief snow overnight may be all we get from this storm besides a rainy mix through most of Friday. In any case, areas well to the north and west of Madison, say up in Sauk and Columbia counties, are fairly likely to see a decent snow from this and may eventually be included in the winter storm watch that's currently flying for counties just north and west from there. Cold air is quite limited on the backside of this storm, so while we'll cool modestly for the day Saturday, Backing winds and uh, warmer temperatures will be back at us before the weekend closes out, staying in place then the way it's looking through much of next week, possibly longer than that. But back to the forecast for tonight, high clouds are already starting to stream overhead ahead of a system that's going to be passing to our north tomorrow, so sky should generally thicken as we go forward through the night from here, with temperatures holding steady in the uh, low 20s for a while before beginning to rise uh, as southeasterly winds start to come up to about 12 to 8, uh, 12, <laughs> 8 to 12 miles per hour by dawn. Clouds may uh, thicken downward enough for some light snow as we go into and through the morning hours tomorrow. Uh, perhaps this round will have a little more success than yesterday's round did. Temperatures will increase to the upper 30s on south-southeasterly winds up at 10 to 17 miles per hour. Skies might lift or possibly break a little bit in the afternoon. I'm not too sanguine about that. Skies will remain mostly cloudy as we go overnight with a low temperature in the upper 20s. Friday, clouds will thicken through the morning hours with uh, light snow or rain or perhaps a mix, depending upon the track of this storm, starting up in the early to mid-afternoon hours and then continuing through the evening. I'm guessing that areas towards the Wisconsin River and north from there will see the most of the accumulating snow, but uh, unless there's an obvious track change with the storm, areas from Madison to the south and east will get too much mixing to, with rain to stack up much snow. 
Northerly winds uh, early Friday will veer easterly and increase about 10 to 17 miles per hour, backing more northerly then again and coming down for a while overnight. Saturday, stronger west-northwesterly winds up at 12 to 20 miles per hour will hold us in the low 30s as skies clear through the day. We'll be down in the low and mid-20s overnight, but winds will already be backing south and west, so the temperatures again may come up later in the night. That would Those winds will take us back towards 40 on the day Sunday. At the station down here on Bedford Street, the current temperature is 23 degrees. The dew point temperature is 14. Uh, passing mid-level clouds up at about 15,000 feet. Winds are out of the east currently at 5 miles per hour. The barometer uh, holding fairly steady over the past several hours. It's now at 29.99 inches of mercury. Local news on WORT. We go now to December 10th, 1967, and a local tragedy which stunned music lovers around the world. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, December 10th, 1967, the death of Otis Redding. Otis Redding was one of the breakout stars at the Monterey Pop Festival in June, blowing minds with powerful performances of songs like Shout, Try a Little Tenderness, and the song he wrote, which Aretha Franklin made into a huge hit, Respect. In October, he dethroned Elvis Presley as the year's top male vocalist in a poll by the British music magazine Melody Maker. Now he's coming to Madison for his first Wisconsin appearance. Two shows on Sunday, December 10th at The Factory, Ken Adamani's new night spot at 315 West Gorham Street. The dynamic King of the Soul Singers has appearances coming up on the Ed Sullivan and Johnny Carson shows. There's a duet album with Aretha Franklin in the works, and he's about to take a Christmas trip to Vietnam to entertain the troops. But tonight... Two shows in the 1,500-person capacity factory, where his contract is for $3,000 and another $1,750 if both shows sell out. The early show doesn't, but it looks like the 9 o'clock show will. Tickets, 3 bucks at Discount Records, three fifty at the door. Opening act is a band Adamani manages from Rockford called The Grim Reapers, featuring guitarist Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson on bass. Redding is flying up from Saturday night shows in Cleveland in the well-used green and white Beechcraft 18 airplane he had just bought for $78,000. The godfather of soul himself, James Brown, had told him the twin 450 engines 
weren't big enough to carry Redding and his party of seven fellow Georgians. His five-men backing band, the Barquets, a teenage assistant, and pilot Richard Fraser. But it's Redding's pride and joy. It's raining so heavily in Cleveland on December 10th that some flights are grounded, but Otis doesn't want to disappoint his fans, so it's wheels up. The weather's a bit better in south-central Wisconsin, but there's still a damp drizzle and heavy fog, sealing only about a hundred feet. Fraser knows he'll need to make an instrument landing because of a low ceiling and poor visibility, so the Georgian sets the plane to autopilot and doesn't realize that ice is building up on the frame. Redding is in the co-pilot seat, probably asleep. Bernard Reese, president of the Gardner Baking Company, is outside at his lakeside house on Monona's Tony Watha Trail. He hears the plane and thinks the motors sound like they're laboring. At 3.25 p.m., the plane is four miles south of the airport, about 1,200 feet above the lake. Fraser gets clearance and lowers the landing gear. Suddenly, with no call of distress, the plane sputters and stalls and falls into the wintry water. The National Transportation Safety Board later lists the cause as miscellaneous, undetermined. Reese watches in horror and races inside to call police. Then he and neighbor Chris Dickert go out in his boat to help. It's Dickert who notices something gray and shiny bobbing in the water. Otis's attache case. Police divers get there in a hurry, but are only able to make one rescue, trumpeter Ben Cauley of the backing band Barquets. The others are all dead. It's difficult and dangerous work recovering the bodies. Otis isn't found until Monday. One of the most dynamic performers of his day died still strapped into his seat. Some magazines actually published a macabre photo attesting to that tragic irony. About 4.30, police call Adam Annie at the factory and ask him to send someone down to identify the bodies. Police later report that the attaché case contained about $4,000 in cash, part of the payments for the show in Cleveland, and a fraternity dance at Vanderbilt. But neither case nor cash are returned to Redding's widow Zelma or his father when they come to Madison to bring Otis home. Record company executive Phil Walden and road manager Twiggs Lydon are able, however, to get Coroner Clyde Chamberlain to overlook the small bag of marijuana found in Redding's pocket. It's getting close to the 6.30 showtime, and the chilled crowd is waiting impatiently outside. It falls to Gary Carp, keyboard player with the White Trash Blues Band, to go to the club's second-floor window to announce the show's been canceled. At first, many are suspicious and start to boo. In the era of music should be free, they quickly conclude Otis had never really been booked at all. Carp repeats the awful news, and the terrible reality sets in. A stunned silence falls over the crowd. It's not quite two months since the campus riot between police and protesters over recruiting by the Dow Chemical Company, and the cops worry what might happen. They ask Annamani to open the club so people can focus on music rather than grief and anger. Annamani gets a Milwaukee R&B band, Lee Brown and the Cheaters, and lets the crowd in for free. Before leaving his home in Macon, Georgia, on the short tour, Reddick had completed the vocal on a softer, contemplative song written on a houseboat in Sausalito shortly after Monterey. 
Stax Records Vice President Al Bell worries about its markability, but Otis trusts his own artistic instinct. This is my first million seller right here, he says on December 6th. Otis underestimated. Released January 8, 1968, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay tops both the R&B and pop charts, wins two Grammy Awards, and sells about four million copies. Grim Reaper musicians Nielsen and Peterson later form the band Cheap Trick, which is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016, 27 years after Otis Redding. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, anniversary-commemorating, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. Does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Gabrielle Javier Cerulli and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman is our on-air engineer this evening. Nate Weggehaupt produced this newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. What's next? Because I, I don't know. W-O-R-T Madison. Madison.